Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. There is no Joe. Joe is moving house, so he spent his entire weekend packing and so didn't have any time for football. So we're without him this week, or we are without him for a couple of days. He'll be back for Friday's episode. We do have JJ though. Hello, JJ. Hello. And Alex has returned from holiday. Hello, Alex. I have, yes. Hello. Do you have a nice time? Uh, I read a lot of science fiction and played Civilization VI mostly. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. I feel like we can make this pod into a bit of a safe space. There's no Joe, there's no rules. It's just, you know, how's everyone feeling? Well, the, the idea of doing something that I wouldn't enjoy is counterintuitive. But yes, it was it was nice. Thank you. When you spend quite a lot of your weekends watching football, you seem to That's really true. That and I don't, I don't enjoy that. So, yeah, no, you're right. Okay, so what did we talk about today? Um, we had a quick trip through Leeds Tottenham. Um, we completely ignored Sheffield United Crystal Palace because nobody watched that and nobody cares because, well, they just don't. Um, checked in with Man City and Chelsea, talked about the upcoming Champions League final. Um, I talked again about Burke Ilmaz and how much I love him. Um, did a bit on Mason Greenwood. What else did we talk about, Alex? Um, we talked about Arsenal being a bit soft, Eric Dyer being a bit slow and... The Lons goalkeeper being quite short. They have two short goalkeepers, actually. I find it very strange. I also talked about uh, uh, Mikel Antonio being misused against Everton. That was, I enjoyed that bit. That was a bit weird when I had to go off on that monologue. Um, before we get to the podcast, uh, there is the obligatory mention of the Athletic, where you can get all your football reporting, all your stories. And I'm not sure what the specific deal is at the moment, but there is always one. Um, so if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, can be yours. Subscribe today, please. Make Joe happy. Go on. What is Eric Dyer and where does he go? JJ, I felt like you may have written that note. Let's start there. <laughs> uh, yes. Eric Dyer, so a few weeks ago, I think he um, said that under, like, criticism of his defending was unfair and that um, basically that he, I think he thinks he's maybe a little bit better at the position than he perhaps is. So I'm not sure exactly what position Eric Dyer should be. When he played for England before and he was doing well, he was like a defensive midfielder. Uh, Josie Mourinho put him into centre-back when he's at Spurs and now he seems to be thought of as this kind of ball playing centre back because he can, you know, he's comfortable in possession or whatever. But there have been so many instances, at least, well, I mean, two, two, two of the goals that Leeds scored here, I think he was almost entirely at fault for. Um, the first one, obviously, when they, um, I can't even remember the first one because it's 
Yeah, the first one he doesn't cut out the cross. When uh, Sergio Reguillon tried to volley it past his own goalkeeper. Oh, yeah. We'll probably put that one on Reguillon, I think, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like the, the ball comes across him from the left. Like he's positioned well. Spacing wise with his, his centre back partner, it's fine. His body shape's fine. But he lets the ball run across him. For, I, I don't know why. I mean, Real Ferdinand was talking about it on the on the broadcast, and he's like, I, he couldn't fathom why on earth he would possibly do it. But it's because he's not, he doesn't have that centre back's mind, that destructive uh, brain where you just get rid of something first. I mean, that's one of the situations where you just get you just get rid of it, right? And then the second one is when Bamford scores and the, the ball comes across him, and you can see like Dyer's flat footed, and he's not he's not ready to to pounce on it to get it away. And it's the kind of thing I think instinctively a good centre-back would do. And as much as you can work with him on the training ground and you can try and coach this into him, like, you need to be aware of this, he's done these same sorts of mistakes so often in that position that I wonder if it's just something that you go, right, it's, it's not working. We'll, we'll put him into midfield again. It feels like a, a classic case of an identity crisis. Because actually, when he first came to the club, he started as a full-back or a right-sided centre-back. And he was very passable. He was a very 7 out of 10 player. Like, he did... he. There were moments where he's a little bit overmatched against the, the team's best, um, the, the league's best players, best forwards. But he was he was perfectly serviceable as a kind of placeholder. Um, other end of the pitch, Alex, you quite liked a little bit of the interplay between the front players. Talk to me about that Pochettino vibes you write in the in the notes. Yeah, well, I I suppose what I associated Spurs at their best with under Pochettino was this quick interplay. They would bunch two or three players between particularly between the opposition defence and midfield line, uh, and just have these very quick pass-and-move, one-touch, two-touch interplays that would put players beyond the the defensive line. And you had people like Ericsson who were were particularly good in tight spaces at doing that, and Kane would join in the link-up. And I think part of what, what was good about that was that Kane dropped off less he could still do that, and I, I still think Kane is a, a very good playmaker as a 10. Um, but because Tottenham were playing further up the pitch and more on the front foot, that would allow him not to drift off so much. Uh, and I think Spurs at their best in this game were able, with Deli Alli's movement uh, and, and Deli Alli's ability to hold the ball up in tight spaces and play little interplays with players trying to run in behind they did generate some of that. I think the issue was that there was insufficient kind of, uh, not cover really, but the, the midfield seemed kind of caught in two minds. Like Lacelso was either too high or not high enough. Hoiberg was trying to do too much on his own. Um, and again, uh, to go back to this um, thing with Eric Dyer, you know, if you've got two centre-backs who aren't the quickest in the world, um, then someone like Hoiberg is naturally thinking, I'm going to need to drop back off and cover all of the time, particularly if the fullbacks are pushing high. So I felt Spurs couldn't really kind of capitalise on the quality of some of their forward play because the team structure as a whole didn't allow them to pin leads back as much as they wanted to. You now this Hoiberg performance reminded me of, do you remember the um, the first game of the season against Everton when we absolutely crucified Spurs on the pod a couple of days later? Yeah. And Hoiberg was dismal. And it was it was the same kind of tone of performance because it was he was like he's like a player that hadn't been given a role but instead had been asked to cover three different positions. That's the thing, and he just didn't do any of them very well. It was exactly the same as Hoiberg that. Hoiberg needs 
a bit of discipline. He yeah. needs to be in a position where... Yeah, exactly this. Because otherwise, he has a tendency... Uh, and, and he did this at Southampton at, at times too. He has a tendency to kind of go rogue and just rush around all over the place and be a bit rash and overcommit to challenges, vacate the defensive position that he should be occupying. And I sometimes think that's a lack of team structure. I sometimes think that he's doing it because he's not seeing enough around him. And, and Lo Celso is an interesting midfield partner for him. I think Lo Celso and Hoiberg would work well in a proper midfield three together. But in a two, Lo Celso is quite good at pressing, but he's not a ball winner. So he will he will create movement towards the ball, which forces the player in possession to make choices. But that would often then mean that he's out of position. He's not necessarily covered by somebody else. And if the player in possession makes a good decision, then Lo Celso's taken out of the game and suddenly you've got Hoiberg frantically trying to cover across because he knows his centre-backs are slow. So you, you could see how it might work, but I think structurally there was there was enough about Spurs that was unsound uh, to mean that it was never quite going to. If Joe was here, we'd probably be having more fun. Like he'd, he'd, he'd say something, he'd make a noise at this point or say something irreverent. <laughs> he would definitely also, JJ, he would lecture you for, for adding to the Google document during the podcast. Whenever I do that, he stops the podcast and he admonishes me publicly. But Oh no. Your news, you didn't know that. But you have put that uh, you want to talk about Tottenham's high block, not a press in brackets. And well, you're also very keen to point out that you wrote this bit. Well, it was more that so because um, I wrote that bit before that um, that you gave to Alex. You see, because I didn't want to make sure, maybe Alex didn't want that's to talk about it. The well, that's really something you take up with Alex. Like it's yeah. you know if you if you want. To, well, no, I didn't want I didn't want in. Alex to feel like he had to do something that I'd written down. Maybe he changed his mind about the Pochettino vibes. You see, yeah, I but didn't this, want to. you know, bit, bit bit of kind of um, you know constructive tension in the podcast. Good performance, kind of Mourinho-ish. You're definitely not allowed conflict. to highlight the Google Doc during the pod. That's a big <laughs> Joe Devine no-no. Stop that immediately. I'm not going to do that then. Um, also, the thing I thought, just what we're talking there, was um, against a team like Leeds, who obviously, you know, they transition so quickly and they press so much. You'd think a player, it's the classic Tongi and Dombele chat that people would have, but you'd think he would be the kind of player that would suit that role that Lo Celso was given. Or even someone like Sissoko, so you can break easier. Because you've got... That kind of high, but they weren't really pressing high. They were they were waiting for Leeds to come out a little bit, I think. So they had Kane, Bale, and and Son were quite happy with the pitch, but they weren't engaging early. They were waiting for them to come out, so that there was a little bit of space for them to then, if they were to win a turnover, they could then make use of that, which makes a lot of sense. But then that's where you'd need someone. I guess you have Ali can play uh, your through balls, and, and the the ball he played through for the goal was really really nice like just seeing his angles and knowing where the space is going to be but then if you have Lacelso a bit deeper he can't really do the stuff you need him to do and I would have thought it's easy to say this in hindsight obviously I mean Ryan Mason's come in with a, a plan what he thinks is going to work but for me Ndombele is able to break out of a tiny little 1v1 and then get that ball forward which would made use of what they were trying to do there and it's weird as well like moving on to like Gareth Bale and how he seems to be really good against bad teams, but quite anonymous. And and, and Leeds focus a lot of their play down the left. And I'm not sure it's because they thought Bale was weak defensively. Uh, certainly, maybe they thought um, Serge Aurier was. But they focus, it's 46% of Leeds' attacks are all on the left going down that side. They had Alioski overlapping constantly with 
uh, Jack Harrison, who was excellent all the way through that game. Jack Harrison's and, had a really good season, actually, yeah. generally. Jack Harrison is one of those players I feel would, if, if England weren't as strong as they are out wide in terms of selection opportunities, Jack Harrison would be strongly in the conversation. But because there are so many people ahead of him, he's not. And that feels kind of, not unfair, but he's, yeah, Harrison's been exceptional this if season. If it was the mid-90s and England were still trying everybody who was left-footed on the left side of their midfield, <laughs> Jack Harrison would probably be England captain. Yeah, like he'd be yeah. he'd be kind of like a super Steve Guppy. It would be um, he's a good player. He's I feel like he's he's an example of what happens if um, if a formative part of your career happens in MLS. Like you have to suffer a bit of prejudice as a result of that, um, and it's really unfair because he's he's been largely excellent in the Premier League. I, I think he's um, had a couple of bad games right at the beginning of the season, but he's been um, he's been quietly very very good. And also, I think one one of the, one of the issues with Leeds is that. It's not a problem by any means, but as an individual player, you kind of get lost in Bielsa land, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. You kind of get lost in the kind of the um, the praise for the ideology and, you know, for the man himself. It's it's an interesting issue. It's an interesting issue because I also think that it it does translate a little bit towards international selection, because when you have when you have players that excel in a system, but the system is particularly idiosyncratic I'm, I'm thinking about things like the man orientated pressing and you know there are there are things that Leeds do that really very very few other teams do and that does I think sometimes make it hard possibly if you're if you're an international coach to see exactly how a Leeds player is going to be able to to fit into your system um, because it's you know there's, there's there's so much emphasis put on how Bielsa plays that it kind of infects the way that people see any of those players. Um, and they, you know, they are, I thought Robin Cook, for example, did really well out of position playing the kind of Calvin Phillips role. Um, you know, he's a centre back, but he was able to step forwards, control the play. And that, that was something I felt that Spurs maybe should have put more of an effort into trying to exploit, but Cook did superbly to, to mitigate that. And that's, that's because these Leeds players are so well drilled in how the team functions as a whole. They can interchange. Oh, I kind of lost my voice slightly at the end there. That was weird. <laughs> I feel like I should just sort of let you hang in silence. I feel that's what Joe should do. That's my main <laughs> like, hosting swallowed influence. my own tongue there. Let's see how, how, how I dig a hole. Uh, dig a hole. Deep a hole. He digs himself. It's Monday, there's a lot of week to go. Right, well done Leeds. Uh, Spurs are shit. They're still shit. Uh, let's talk about Manchester City against Chelsea. Now, a um, little bit of a confession. Halfway through this, uh, I had to uh, help my father-in-law with some digging in the garden. And that was kind of like a test of manliness. So I, I couldn't just say, no, I can't do this. I yeah, need to, to watch it. the football. Um, my shoulders haven't really been the same since, but at the time I put in a, a pretty good show in, in sort of digging earth and putting it in a wheelbarrow and... Uh, you know, I'm still allowed to be married to his daughter, so well, well done me. But as a result, I have not seen much of this game um, beyond Raheem Sterling's goal. JJ, talk to me about it, please. Um, we'll do. Who did you bury in the? <laughs> no, no, it was mainly just moving one pile of earth into wheelbarrow and then creating another pile of earth somewhere else. Uh, but it I... was important work. Oh yeah, of course. I succeeded in it, which is the important bit of it. <laughs> Well, uh, I really enjoyed this game. I thought it was uh, a, a great watch. 
I don't think uh, City are going to play the same team uh, in the final, and I wonder whether that's Pep Guardiola being very clever and trying to, um, you know, a cunning ruse against Chelsea by playing a team that I just don't think he'd possibly play in the final. He played something like a 3-2-3-2. The the midfield in this game had Raheem Sterling and Ferran Torres, who are either wide players or or forwards, or they're not midfielders, basically. And it kind of looked a bit like that in the way the the team played. He had Rodri basically on his own in midfield for for most of the game. And um, it kind of... No team really had particular control over it, I'd say. I mean, the possession was mostly shared. They had one team had a bit of the game, and the next team had the bit of the game afterwards. Um, the 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 penalty decision that Raheem Sterling didn't get that could have maybe finished off the game, but instead it's Chelsea who who won it. And I have watched the winning goal a lot of times, and I still don't know exactly who and how the ball has gone into the the net. I don't know if anyone's managed to work that out. Given given to Alonso, isn't it? It is given to Alonso. Who, I Marcus Alonso, well, Marcus Alonso survived the apocalypse. Like he's just always there, isn't he? Like no matter how many times Chelsea change a manager, eventually he kind of worms his way back into the first team and starts scoring goals again. But he's really useful as a wing back because he's he's quite good in the air and he likes to get into the. He often you'll find him attacking like the penalty spot. So it's not just that he gives you your attacking width. He's really useful as like a central forward at times, um, which is especially good if you're playing with a system where you're definitely going to have crosses coming in from one wing, especially when it's Reese James, who's really good at putting them into the area. Um, Billy Gilmore started in this game as well, and he's interesting particularly for me because there's a lot of chat just now on whether he should be in the Scotland setup and what he'd bring. I mean, he's, only, he's not played that much for Chelsea, but I think he's really good when he does, and he's exactly the sort of player that Scotland would really could do with like he's a straight six right he just sits in front of the defense and distributes passes really tidy uh really un- i don't want to talk about penalties but he's really really unlucky with the one he gave away i thought i it's thought a- that was inadvertent i don't I, I i know it's a penalty but it feels like it's a it's soft still yeah i think so like what do you think of both penalties actually i mean do you think the sterling one should have been guardiola is adamant i mean it's one of those where if, if, if you want it given for your side, but if it gives, 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 gets given against you, you're livid. It's one of those. Like, you can see both sides of it, I think. Yeah. Probably the same with Gilmore's. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Alex, earlier in the weekend, you said you weren't going to watch the Manchester City-Chelsea game, but you were going to catch on it later. Did you, Mm. in fact, do that? No. That wasn't a great segue then, was it? No. I think there's, I mean, it's partly because I think JJ's right in that it seems unlikely that, that the reason this match is important kind of is because of the Champions League, right? I mean, City are going to win the title anyway and Chelsea are pushing, but it's it's a it's a foretaste. And I think Pep 
you know, there's no way he's going to do a similar kind of thing. Maybe that this fixture was about trying something out to see if it would work or not. Um, but as a fixture in the Premier League, it's not massively relevant. And, and people will just be looking to infer things about the Champions League final from it. Uh, and I don't think you can particularly. So I, I, don't, I don't. I don't want Pep Guardia trying stuff out ahead of a Champions League final. That's that's kind of that's the flashing red light danger zone for me. Like, well, like this new theory that I've been working on in secret for the last six months. Let's give it a let's give it a test run in the Champions League final. <laughs> that well, no, but that's that's the Man point City with fan. this, isn't it? It's it's to to see whether those players can can occupy the kind of you know the 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 free eight slash ten hybrid thingy that we talk about. Um, you know, he he likes he does like to tinker with things. He does like to try odd. I mean, I, I I think I jokingly said in the WhatsApp group that he played John Stones as a centre forward. I don't think he'll do that. But there, I think the issue when when particularly when you're playing a domestic a fellow domestic side is there is there is an onus to spring something different because. The, by the time you get to the end of the European season, the teams have played each other so many times. Yeah. They've seen each other so many times. And and you throw in Pep's kind of natural inclination to do something a bit weird and jazzy in big games. And I do... I, I, I don't worry about it because I don't care who wins either way. But I do feel like this fixture in the Champions League final does have the potential for Pep to go like full Pep. And also, especially with how Chelsea play, they always seem to have numbers like, like numbers over in attack and defence, but rarely do they control the middle of the pitch. Yeah. So like, where do you gain your advantage? And that's why I think that was... It's interesting that you, that you tried that because you effectively got four forwards with two wide players, right, with City there. So Chelsea's midfield is really interesting because you have... You have a great deal of uh, a vertical movement from Kante, particularly pushing backwards and forwards, trying to draw players out of a kind of blocking position in the right half space. Quite advanced. That's what it, I mean, Tuchel likes to create this kind of four and six shape. So the four is the three centre backs, or sometimes a, a a wing back tucking in, and then a defensive midfielder, and that's the kind of deep build-up position and then ahead of that you've got these players pushing up and down pushing up and down and Mount does it in a more advanced way and Kante does it slightly deeper but it's to try and generate space between the lines but he also keeps the midfield too really narrow so Jorginho and, and, and Kante are not often more than about 15 yards apart in terms of their horizontal distance so you can understand why Pep's looking at the space on the outside of those two midfielders as being the place that City can potentially get some sort of numerical superiority because the Chelsea midfield is consistently narrow, which is how they protect the back three in part. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it would be successful. Okay. I've got a little bit of a theory about super club management, which kind of developed over the weekend might be nonsense, but hear me out. So I was watching Lille against Lens on Friday night, and obviously Lille are um, going after the French title and look like they're going to win it. And their attitude was absolutely brilliant. They were hungry and dynamic. Burit Yilmaz was... I can't think of another example of a 35-year-old forward joining a new league and having that kind of impact at that stage of his career and potentially winning a title. But That um, second goal. It's ridiculous. 
It's oh, absolutely ridiculous. It's like it's kind of if you Although look back Lons, at goal... Lons do have a very short goalkeeper. Yeah, but Lons Lons got absolutely battered. I mean, they they yeah. there was never any doubt about who was going to win that from the moment that the penalty was given, and, they and they're in up. sixth as well. Yeah, they're not a bad side. Um, yeah. Anyway, the point is, is that I I then watched um, Paris Saint Germain on Sunday night, and they were absolutely atrocious. They were kind of they were the kind of awful in that cliched way where it was like watching a teenager play FIFA a little bit, like you know, skills in in space, pointless. Um, playing at jogging pace, very self-indulgent. Um, rightly dropped points. Um, brilliant equalising header, by the way. But it makes you think it must be like to manage a super club. Um, and this does relate to Pep Guardiola and the way he tinkers and challenges players and kind of creates a sort of tension by mixing and matching systems and asking players to do different things. Like it's a way of keeping players interested, I think. And it's not so relevant in a game between Manchester City and Chelsea because that's obviously a top of the league clash. Um, but the great threat to any super league, a super club, is just this kind of the ennui that comes with being, or the perception that you're so much better than everybody else in your domestic mm-hmm. league. JJ, discuss in GCSE form. That's, that's your essay <laughs> question. Go. Uh, no, that is interesting, but and I think. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's definitely a foreign part of his recruitment policy, right? Because you think City don't really sign superstars. They sign players at a certain level who want to get to the superstar level. Like, people like Ferran Torres, um, it, a lot of money they spent on players like that that come in and then they still have to break into the first team even before they get where they are. So it's always like yeah. they're trying to challenge. So they still have these barriers to break through before they're even established, like, I'm trying to think, like Riyad Mahrez, I think is a good example of it. Well, Phil it's, Foden's a very good example of that, really. Well, I suppose so. And but then it's odd with Foden that he's he's mostly played Champions League. Like I'd say that the higher percentage of the games he's played for City since he's come in have been Champions League. But I wonder if that's because of the style of opponent or, or something. I wonder why that is. There must be something to it. Um, but yeah, I think that's certainly something that has informed how Guardiola has assembled that squad. Is there's no one who. They don't have the players like Mbappe or Neymar or Di Maria, you know, the ones you have to keep interested that think they're better than everyone else. Because as soon as someone doesn't perform on that City side, they're not in the team anymore because there's someone just as good ready to come in to to replace them. I don't know. I mean, there are elements of that PSG side where that's true too. Like, and okay, it, it's it's just too easy to point the finger at Neymar because well, he wasn't good on Sunday night against Rennes, but I mean, nor were a lot of players and. Even the kind of your your average sorts or your your average contextually sorts, like your your kind of Julian Draxers or you know players like that, it's it's just weird. It's kind of I, I don't think I'm I'm offended by anything more than I am when watching PSG in kind of not asked mode. Like it's just <laughs> such a it's such a waste of everybody's time. Like the players on the pitch, the manager, the opposition, the people watching, like the broadcasting company that have paid the rights. Because it's just such a it's such a non spectacle. It's kind of like, well, we'll pass it all around, and I'll do a couple of Cruyff turns, and eventually, you know, one of their centaurs will just punt it into their own net. And it's it's I don't know. It's kind of maddening. I I, I don't know whether this is like I I just had a very trying weekend, or I was overtired, or I'm not sure what. I hadn't had enough coffee, possibly. But it just really fucked me off. I don't know why. It's, it's interesting though, because if you if you contrast it with Bayern, um, certainly if you read Pep Confidential, one of the things that comes through, and I think this is shown by just generally what Bayern are like. I, mean, I don't watch them week in week out, but even though it's very likely that they'll steamroll the Bundesliga every single season, 
you don't get the same kind of... Maybe it's because there's less of a gap between them and a couple of the other sides, but they do always seem fiercely competitive. They do always seem... like They don't have games where it they lose because they can't be arsed. They have games where they lose because they make mistakes or they have injuries or what have you. But there, there seems to be a, a kind of competitive spine to that in a way that doesn't apply perhaps so much to, to PSG, where they have a, civil, a similar level of dominance, but they don't have the mentality. Yeah, actually, that, that Bayern point is pretty fair, because I, I, obviously Bayern became German champions um, before they kicked off on Saturday, um, because RB Leipzig lost to Dortmund. And I think, like, you know, you know your reaction is, like, players here in the dressing room, they're told you in the warm-up, oh, you know, you've won. And most sides kind of go out, Maybe they get a 1-1, 2-2. Possibly they sneak a win just on the basis of, um, you know, their individual quality. Bayern going to thump Cloudback 6-0. <laughs> like, it's just merciless. Um, and it's, I don't know, like, it's, uh, it, it describes something healthy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a result that flatters them and describes who they are in quite a positive way. Um, we all kind of watched Manchester United Villa. Um, the one moment we bonded on was... Mason Greenwood's turn, his rolling of Tyron Mings, and um, the you know the goal he scored to put Man United two one up. What do we like about Mason Greenwood, JJ? Uh, I think I mean that he's really good. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, here I am, uh, top Hashtag analyst. Analysis. This is uh, why we went. We the big bucks are spent on JJ. <laughs> this is why. This is we just didn't have this before. Yeah. Uh, so what I like about Mason Greenwood, well, I think the most basic thing I like about like good footballers is that the first touch is really reliable, so you know what they're going to do. But he's so young, but he, he it's his decision-making. So mm. it, he, he makes the right decisions. He's incredibly two-footed, but not to the point where you can play a nice pass with both feet. Like He can hit the ball at 100 miles an hour with either foot. But um, because of that two-footedness, he's able to go and run at a defender, drop a shoulder, and they have no idea whether he'll go outside or inside. Um, and even like it, it's clever things, like this goal that he scores, where he takes Mings with him. So he runs towards the ball, he sprints towards it. He's quick, there's another good thing about him. Uh, Mings follows him. And gets you could say it's either well, it's both really clever from Greenwood and really kind of naive from Mings because he's running wide of the goal. So there's no threat. Yeah. So there's no need for him to to follow him like that and be that tight to him. And because he's that tight, trying to make sure he knows he's there, Greenwood can just spin him with a clever little drop of shoulder and come in. And then the finish, uh, not not perfectly struck, but enough to get in. And he's gone for the near post. It's almost like that's the only place he can possibly put it. But he shapes up to look like he's going to open open foot it into the top left, and it's everything he does is really clever. But he he scores goals and affects games. He's not just there to dance around and get some nice stats here and there. He he genuinely makes things happen when he's on the ball, and that's what I notice most about him. If, if that makes sense, you know, there's some players who come on and they they look nice, but he actually makes like he wins points on his own. I think he he tries things, yeah, because like. You mentioned it there. I think it's a little bit of a mistake by Tyron Mings because he's not quite aware of where he is and there's no there's no need for him to follow Greenwood out towards the touchline. Um, at the same time, though, like Greenwood's willing to put himself in a position where he'll let the ball run and he could quite easily just surrender possession. And like you know, if he does that in that situation, all his teammates turn to, turn to him and shrug their shoulders. His manager probably cheats him out from the touchline. But like, it's a kind of... It's an interesting personality type when a player who's that young, who's still... 
like I wouldn't consider him a he's a first team regular in the sense that we, we see him regularly, but he's not someone that if Man United had a cup final tomorrow, he's not gonna start that game by default. He's not in that role yet. So he's still trying to prove himself. And I quite like the idea of a player trying to prove himself by taking risks rather than not making mistakes. It's kind of that like a difference in, in character that sort of separates those two those two approaches. Yeah, um I totally agree. And the other thing about it is I mean, he's playing on that wide right. He can play either side. I think in, in, uh, when he played in the youth at United, he was, well, he's, meant, he's meant to be a striker. The thing is going to be a centre-forward long-term. Yeah. But maybe he just doesn't have the all the, I suppose it would be like off-the-ball or positional skill set attributes. Th- things you see in Cavani, like you could put Cavani up front and know that he'll be in the right place at the right time. You can hold the ball up, do everything you want. Not sure that Greenwood's quite there yet. And he's a different sort of player to Cavani too. You know, it, He's not... He's not big or tall, so it's straight away you wonder whether he can play that complete forward kind of role. So if he's then slightly daintier and it likes to move into spaces, is he more of a, I don't know, more of a Thierry Henry type where he can come off into half spaces where he shoots and that's where, I mean, a lot of his goals come from that, that half space on either side of the penalty area where he can wrap that shot from. So it, if they're trying to get him to be a central striker, I'm really keen to see how they, they develop that because at the moment, He's not the best right-sided forward, I think, that United will ever have, for example. No, 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 I agree. Alex, quote, I think probably about seven or eight months ago, we did a video on um, Greenwood's two-footedness, um, which you wrote. What did you find out find it about him, and, and what's his, what is his best position long-term? Well, uh, yeah, I agree with JJ in the sense that if you're looking at him as a centre-forward you're you're seeing a different kind of centre-forward to a Cavani. And I think it is noticeable how United do seem to play better when they've got more of a focal point, somebody who can hold the ball up a little bit. Um, and, you know, particularly in, in Mings and Konsa, you want, you know, you've got two good centre-halves, albeit Mings did make a mistake for this goal, but you, you want someone to be up against them and then making those little canny runs in behind and, and United... I think appreciated having that movement and and Greenwood is he's more mobile he's a bit I don't want to say trickier but because because he has that ability to play off either foot and, and exactly as JJ describes you know that means that when he's when he's fronting up a defender the defender doesn't know which side to put their their weight on to kind of take off I thought it was interesting with the turn obviously Mings is left-footed so his his kind of natural inclination is to try and want to maneuver the ball towards that side so that he can try and get a, a tackle in with that foot and I think Greenwood was was aware of that similarly with the shot you know he scores a lot of goals by going around like wrapping as JJ said and it, so you know if you fire it low you're in both of those instances he's kind of done the unexpected thing and I suppose that means that maybe you know playing Playing in a in a slightly unorthodox right-sided attacker who has license to drift in, that works really well. Except that United don't have a right back who can compensate for that movement by pushing up and being a good attacking force. It's almost like if Greenwood were playing off the left, then Luke Shaw is the ideal fullback to have behind that. Um, Aaron Wambasaka for all the improvements that he's made in his attacking game is not. So I think 
<laughs> a little tetter from someone. Um, and, and you know, it was uh, it was noticeable again because United focused so much of their attack down their left, and and Luke Shaw I thought was absolutely outstanding again. Um, I mean, he's just he's just been really good all season. What that does do slightly is it drags Villa across to the right-hand side, um, particularly because Cash wasn't getting a lot of help from Triori, and so there, there kind of needed to be that general movement over. That does mean that Greenwood's free and kind of loitering for the switch, which works well, but I don't think it gets the most out of him. I think he needs to be more involved. Um, so it's it's either going to be United adapting to a different type of striker or United getting perhaps a more aggressive attacking fullback on the right-hand side. Right, we're going to take a short break, and I'm going to come back and talk about West Ham Everton and a couple of things from Euroland. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Right, we're back and we're going to talk a little bit about West Ham Everton. Only a little bit because during the break I realised that oh, I found out that I'm the only one who watched it. Um, so this is going to be rather kind of an, an awkward little monologue possibly soundtrack by some kind of classical music. I don't know. The only thing I'd say about this, other than this season is going to kind of end disappointingly for West Ham now, is that the way Mikel Antonio was used in this game is really strange. Like, when I think of him at his best, I think of him as just a massive pain. He scores goals in a lot of different ways. He's a good, you know, an accomplished footballer, good finisher. But he's just, like, if you were a centre-half, you would absolutely hate playing against him. I'm a quick, physical, technically good, scores goals, right foot, head, left foot, um, just a real nuisance. And yet, like for most of this game, he just seemed to be stationed out on the left touchline. And it's it's really strange. It just there was no there was no obvious explanation for it. I, I, I didn't even think Everton were particularly good in this game. Dominic Calvert Lewin played quite nicely. Um, Richarlison did a lot of falling over. Um, has anybody else noticed that about Richarlison? Yes, like Richarlison, uh, it's. I think he's a really good player. I love watching him, but goodness me, the screaming. Yeah, it's pr- it's and pretty the consistent with him. Yeah, he acts a hard man uh, until he wants to win a foul and then rolls around the floor a lot. But there's, I've noticed even recently that referees seem to be a bit wiser to it with certain players. They just let the game go on, and even his teammates seem to just go on. It must be well, quite he, was... awkward for the player who's well, holding his leg when he's well, fine. This is the thing. Like, so in the, in the second half yesterday, he. Challenged the ball on the touchline, uh, was taken off him, and he kind of rolled onto the athletics track, holding his ankle and screaming. The referee looked at him, sort of made the play on gesture. Richarlison saw it and then just got up and ran away. <laughs> like it was just like I, I, I was offended by that. I just ah, oh, yeah. just don't, just stop it. Yeah, um, it's such weasel behaviour. It is like Joe really likes Richarlison, and so I thought I'd take this little opportunity while Joe's gone to 
to just you know bite back a little bit. Right, so nobody has watched that, so let's move on. Let's talk about Arsenal West Brom. Um, farewell, Sam Allardyce. Alex. Yeah, I'm sad. I, I, Are you? Are I, you? Well, I am. Because, <laughs> yeah. okay. Sorry, Big Sam. I'm going to call him Big Sam because, you know, we get on. Um, the one thing you can say about him, even if the style of football that his teams relatively often play is reductive, you can absolutely see the impact of coaching. And I thought until Arsenal scored, uh, West Brom looked organised, they looked compact. Both the fullbacks, I thought, dealt really well with the wide players, um, Furlong and someone whose name I can't remember. Um, Yokosalu was was screening and moving around and winning the ball back. Like everything that you expect from an Allardyce team was happening. And there's a slight frustration, I think, for me sometimes when you can see consistently what they're trying to do and because they just don't quite have good enough players, it, it doesn't quite come to fruition. And the contrast there with Arsenal in the first half where... It was really quite hard to see what Arsenal were trying to do. Even though they had considerably better players, it looked like one team had been thoroughly coached and the other team was busking it. Um, and and that it, it is a bit frustrating. And I think, yes, obviously, you know, West Brom are not a great side and do deserve to go down. And Allardyce has improved them a bit, but not a massive amount. Um, but it's... Uh, Yes, it just, I don't know. It. I don't want to say it was unfair because it wasn't, but it did feel in that first half like like you were watching teams that were managed in very different ways. JJ, no donut. <laughs> yeah, the donut wasn't on play here. Um, uh, one, I mean, I think the big reason for that is because he didn't play Granite Jacket at left back, and that's often where the donut comes in, where you have midfielders gathered around wide areas. Instead, he played Saka at left back, which is where he first played him in the very first game in charge of Arsenal. Arteta played Saka at left back, and he was excellent because he was able to overlap. The caveat mm-hmm. is he's playing against West Brom, right? So any goods you saw from Arsenal in this game, I think, has to be tempered with he's playing against one of the worst teams in the league this season. And uh, Arsenal tend to do well against them. But playing Saka there means that you can then play like Pepe in the same team, which means that Pepe was unable to score that lovely goal that he did because he's in a team from the start. But the, the donut only comes into play when you have that weird kind of team. I mean, Danny Ceballos is in here. His part in the goal that Pereira scores is weird because he points to where he thinks Gabriel should move, which takes him out of position to allow Pereira to run through. But he then does take a the lot shot. of pointing. He does yeah. a lot of pointing. It's just constant. And and it, I, I it's don't good know body language because... though, isn't it? It's like well, it's it's a kind of the is it good body the, language? No, but I, I mean good in inverted commas. It's a well, this is what it looks like when you're a properly engaged footballer. So I'm going to do a lot of it. There, like there it was an Eric Dyer point for the the second Leeds goal. Actually, he points Hoiberg towards Bamford as if to say. He's yours now, and then, and then he's. I'm just suspicious of players that point rather than do, and Sabios seems firmly in that category. <laughs> what, what is? Although um, actually, his metrics are really quite good. This is what I find weird. Like in terms of 
In terms of getting the ball forwards into the penalty area, key passes, progressive passes, Ceballos is like a top four or five player for Arsenal per 90 in all of those passing metrics. Not to be the Luddite in this conversation, because I like metrics and I like data, but he's just so not, though. He's just such a... He's a kind of... You can't play him in a two, because he doesn't have the discipline, and he doesn't really have the skill set, I don't think. He gets lost a little bit in a midfield three because he's not really the halfway point between any of the players in that Arsenal squad. What's his future? Because he's not he's not going to play for Real Madrid, like not in a long-term way anyway. Like, And I, I'd be amazed if Arsenal not going to be in the Champions League, they're probably not going to qualify for the Europa League. I have to believe they don't have the funds to, to make his... Didn't you say a few pods ago that he would probably end up... I think this was you, that he would end up going to somewhere like Villarreal and yeah, that sounds... rediscovering himself and becoming actually quite good. Because I think... That sounds like something I might say. Yeah. yeah, it does, doesn't it? The problem he has is that the system doesn't suit him. Exactly yeah. like you say, he doesn't he doesn't work in this midfield too, particularly when he was playing, you know, if he's playing alongside someone like Xhaka who just doesn't have the mobility. I, I mean, is he a 10 possibly? Is he a 10 in a team that already has a really good 10? Is he good enough in those... Like, when he's, like I, I can see it. In a slower-paced league, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because I, I don't see him as being a, as good enough to be a 10 for a side that challenges for anything. Well, he's not He's not a dynamic 10, is he? That's the thing. He's, he's the kind of player that I think, if he's given time and space, can pick good passes. And for Arsenal, that's not how they want their front four to play. They want plenty of dynamism, plenty of movement. Um, and and you can see... I mean, I, I did... I came away from this game with the confirmation of what I had carried through this season, which is that Arsenal's best players are the children that are coming into the side. And they play in an exciting, attacking, vibrant way. There's a lot of dynamism and a lot of energy. And it feels like this is a team that really is caught between two stools from an identity perspective. You know, you've got a lot of a lot of older players, a bit of dead weight, players who don't quite fit a system or can fit one system, but it's not quite the way that Arsenal seem to want to play the rest of the time. I'm thinking of people like Lacazette and Aubameyang as much as I am people like Xhaka. Um and then you've got these incredibly vibrant young talents that you want to create a team around. But it's not like you can only swap in one or two players and then you fix it. Like, I, I think Arsenal are in a really, really weird position currently. You know what's interesting? And this is kind of where this, this shows how sort of pervasive um, FIFA culture is. There seems to be this misconception that Arsenal, at the end of the season, can just sell all the players they don't like for loads of money. And then just spend all that <laughs> loads of money on better players. Like sure. Alice is right because you, it's not just that they they've got a lot of players on the wage bill that um, aren't probably going to be part of the long term future or a good long term future. It's that they're on high wages and they're not going to better those wages anywhere else because a lot of these players have been devalued or they've got older or their reputations have been damaged. So, for instance, like you can't like you can't really change your mind about. Bamiang at this point because you've just given him a massive new contract and he's not he's if if anyone were willing to offer him half of what Arsenal are paying at the moment I'd be surprised um and so you kind of just have to take on the chin for a few years which is just like in terms of like 
uh, let's not get into the Arteta thing because I, I suspect other podcasts will do a finer job of that. But um, in terms of a, a rebuild, well, it's not going to be dramatic. You're not going to be able to ship out 10 players and bring in another 10 in one summer because football firstly doesn't work like that. And secondly, like Arsenal don't have the resources to do one before the other. It's a nightmare. And it's like it, that penny doesn't seem to have dropped yet. It's like this is a this is kind of this is how it's going to look probably for about five years. I'd have thought watching United, who are for me an interesting analog because they also have a young previously associated with the club manager and have looked tactically a bit chaotic at times this season. Um, Man United do feel much more like they are one or two signings away from being a really really good side. Do you think that's also a little bit because Man United, those one or two signings could be for £60 million each, potentially? Whereas, Well, possibly, yes. I mean, I think I think that is partly it. But I also think that, that, that United, it feels like they've got a lot more... They've got a lot more solidity within units. So the defence, maybe you'd upgrade Lindelof. Um, the attacking unit, I think, has got a lot of talent and a lot of it is quite young talent and is still developing. It feels like they're just one good distributing defensive midfielder away from becoming a proper force. Whereas Arsenal, I think you you have to nail down what the identity of the team as a whole is before you can even start making those sorts of acquisitions. And it feels like it feels like there's too much of a disjunct between what Arteta appears to want to do. And I'm very, very wary about, about being too um, bullish on what a manager's actual intentions are, because I think it's really hard to say, even if you watch a lot. But I don't, I don't see Arsenal being a team where, you know, a couple of signings that will fix obvious issues are going to be the difference. It, it feels like they're too amorphous currently. I think there was a a bit, well, there's something Kyle Bartley shouted during the game, which I think kind of sums up (laughs) what people think of, well, players think of Arsenal, which was, uh, um, come on, one goal and they'll shit themselves. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't wrong, though, was he? Well, that's the kind of thing I think about Arsenal. Like, they're 2-0 up and they were doing all right against West Brom and they allowed them back into it, you know, and it's... uh, this is what they, I think they need these players who don't that they won't stand for that like that like Bartley got away with saying that you know no one's gonna yeah. then there's no there's nothing aggressive about Arsenal whatsoever not that you need that you can win I mean look at City you can have players that play beautiful football and you can win games that way but they just clearly need something like Tierney is the only player in that team who I think would quietly have like a little dig at someone's ankles off the ball to let them know like you don't do that but none of the other ones would. I think they're far more concerned with pointing at others to do things so it looks like they're doing something. You know, you need someone who takes the... It's very cliche and quite um, Sam Allardyce analysis, but you need someone who takes responsibility. Players who are... They will make sure that that ball doesn't go where it's about to go to make sure that space is covered because it's their job. They don't want to lose. And it's like it's almost like they're... Um, I thought this for, for a while for Arsenal is that the prize for a lot of the youngsters coming through is that they've made the Arsenal first team. Not that they're going to win games. It's like yeah. they're not yeah. desperate to win. They're happy to be playing. And I think that's the, the culture shift that they need. And it's really, really complicated and takes so long to get it in. And, and like Wenger had the whole time, as he said, he can never really bring in more than three or four players for the first team at a time. You just can't do it because it 
unsettles the balance of the team and they'll be stuck, like you say, in transition for a long time otherwise. But I think there's a good point there about the difference between wanting to win and not wanting to lose Yeah, from a mentality perspective. And I, I saw someone on Twitter saying something like, you know, Arsenal always want to score the perfect goal and oh, they just did. Because that, you know, that Smith Rowe goal was delightful. Um, but it does it does feel like sometimes with that team, they they want to attack and they want to look good and they want to you know yes you want to win but but like you say there's I I've, I've always been an advocate and I said this about Southampton a while back actually you need to have a couple of bastards in your team <laughs> you you need to have a couple of people who are prepared to do shitty things and that's always you know if you look at teams like. Manchester City and Chelsea, yes, they can play incredibly attractive football and they're very well coached and they can buy high-quality players. But they also have people in them who will kick you. You know, like you have a Fernandinho, you have an N'Golo Kante or a Rudiger, you know, people Mm -hmm. who are prepared to do unpleasant things because it's the difference between not losing and losing. And I I think you're right, Arsenal haven't got enough of those I wonder whether one of the best things that could happen to Arsenal at least this summer is to kind of recognise that there isn't like a a silver bullet solution there isn't like a player out there who can come into the side and change everything like maybe the answer is actually just to to scale down the ambition a little bit and start looking at in, in line with what Alex said look at some players who are a little bit more uncomfortable to play against so if you want a forward don't find a finesse player. Don't find someone that kind of is going to go and shift shirts and, you know, score beautiful goals. Go and take, I don't know, Val Vieghorst off Wolfsburg. Just, I, I, I understand that he may not fit the native style, but just become a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more horrible. And I don't mean Arsenal, like stack. Arsenal would never sign Jokosli, right? But then, like, this is, this is the problem. exactly the kind of player... Yeah, that yeah, would yeah. do all of that stuff. Who would? Yeah. Co- I mean, there are a couple of instances where he was, he was covering in behind the fullbacks when they got caught out of position, and like you know, not doing. He wasn't hairing around. He was watching the ball and guiding it out, but he was just in those spaces to do the uncomfortable things that other players sometimes can't be asked to do. And Arsenal don't have that. Yeah, no, I feel the reason they don't have that is because they, they still have a little bit of residual snobbery over who they buy in, in the transfer market, what is an mm. Arsenal player. Like in the same way that I, I think that perfect goal thing, I think that's been a little bit outdated for a while. But I think the idea of Arsenal, I, no, every club is, is kind of right to be possessive of, of a style, but like you have to mix that with a certain degree of pragmatism. And that's particularly true if you don't like if there isn't sort of a primacy of technique within your squad, if you're not Manchester City or Chelsea, or if you don't, you know, if you can't just line up, um, you know, uh, attacking players and, and win, you know, by sort of um, individual by individual battles, like you need to have, you need to have players who are kind of, yeah, bastards. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not advocating like, you know, signing eight John Joe Shelby's like, you know, because that, that's just crazy. He's not a different kind of he's just, he's just a bad tackler. No, no, John Joe's but a bad tackler. So player. against the, um, in the Villa game against United, um, Villa brought on with 25 odd minutes to go a, a, a player I'd not seen before called Jacob Ramsey. And Ramsey's come through 
the Villa youth system. And he's a defensive midfielder. He's a six. And he, you know, there were a couple of instances. I'm not saying that he came on and wowed me, but there were a few instances where he made quite a good challenge or he was well positioned in the box to make an interception and a clearance. And you don't see that kind of young player coming through for Arsenal. Or if you... Or if they are there, they're not the ones that are getting promoted to the first team. And and you you want to see that. You want to see someone, you know, the, the, people get excited about Saka. Fantastic player. Smith Rowe, good player. Could be very good. But you also want to see development across the other positions as well. Where's the young centre-back? Where's the young defensive midfielder? That's I'm sounding very Arsenal fan TV now. Yeah, you also talked about being wowed, which like I don't, I just don't associate. I can't imagine anything. No, ever I, well, I said I you, wasn't Alex. wowed. So. Yeah, but like that, you'd even consider it. Like if you, you'd either you'd have asked yourself that question internally, am I wowed by this? That sounds like a. I don't even know this person. Well, no, I I always get excited when if there's a young player who comes on that I've never heard of, I that I like that. I like waiting to see if they're any good or not. And he was good. Like he was fine. But it was the kind of player he was that was of interest to me. You're a funny little person. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, this is, this has gone on for long enough. Joe will mercifully be back uh, for Friday's episode, so you can all look forward to that. Um, in the meantime, we shall say goodbye. Goodbye, JJ. Goodbye. Goodbye, Alex. Goodbye. Goodbye from me. Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.